This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. It is great to have you back with us today. Here are a few questions for you. Why all this commotion and wailing? What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? How will you escape being condemned to hell? Now, these aren't my questions, as you may realize. These are some of the many questions, though, that the Lord Jesus Christ asked people during the course of his ministry. So what can we learn from the Lord's approach to revealing himself and biblical truth to people in his own day? And how can asking questions actually make a difference in how we evangelize? That's what we're going to talk about today with Randy Newman, Senior Fellow for Evangelism and Apologetics at the C.S. Lewis Institute in the Washington, D.C. area. He is also an adjunct faculty member at Talbot School of Theology, Reformed Theological Seminary, and Patrick Henry College. And today we'll be talking about his book, Questioning Evangelism, now out in its second edition. And Randy, so great to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, very good. We know, we've heard this for many years, that Jesus is the answer, but he certainly did ask a lot of questions, which is kind of funny. But why do you think that Jesus employed this method so often that he asked all these questions when people were trying to get to the bottom of what he was trying to teach? Well, I'm going to resist the temptation to answer your question with a question. <laughs> I thought I thought um, you would. <laughs> but, um, but or, or, well, maybe I won't. I'll say, well, now, um, what did that do when Jesus asked questions? Mm-hmm. Well, it engaged people in the answering process. It involved the, the person who originally posed the question. So when you answer a question with a question, or when you ask a question, you get people actively thinking rather than just passively watching or observing you struggle with the question. And I think that's what happens in a lot of evangelism. People trap us, or they corner us, or they ask us a question, and then they just sort of watch, almost as a, as if it's an entertainment event. Yeah. And, um, entertainment events are not what we need to help people come to faith. What right. we want is get them involved in the thinking and wrestling process. Uh, and that's, that questions are so very powerful to do that. That's right. And yet you have a lot of Christians who say, when I share the gospel, I have to have all the answers. I'm not prepared. The, you know, the Word of God says I have to be prepared to give a defense of the faith, and I don't feel prepared. I have to have this answer and this answer. So what about the need to provide answers, but also employing questions? There may be some who say, well, if I just ask questions, am I not giving answers? Or is that merely a methodology to be able to get to the answer? Well, wow, you, you just posed, I think, three or four questions all at once. I, uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, well, um, you know, having all of the answers would be wonderful. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I would never want to discourage people from studying apologetics and, and preparing as much as they possibly can, as First Peter 3.15 tells us to. Yeah. But, um, but, but first of all, that's unrealistic. I don't think we'll be prepared for everything people throw at us. And what I have found is, you know, when we say, I don't know, or, hmm, I haven't thought of that, or, gee, let me, let me get back to you on that, 
that's not bad. In fact, that's a very positive thing. I think people, at least in, in many of uh, uh, places in America today, I think people feel like, oh, Christians, they're a bunch of know-it-alls. They have all the answers. They, they think they've got it all figured out. And so if we always have an answer, that may actually not, that, that may backfire on us. I, I, I sometimes think the humility to admit we don't know or we need to think about it um, is, is very, very good. And it communicates to the person we're talking to that we respect them and we value their relationship enough to, you know, think about it some more. Right. Right. So in other words, if you don't come across as a know-it-all when you're having a conversation with a non-believer, that can, that can actually help your evangelism because you seem more human in some ways, if you want to put it that way, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And um, I, I think um, we, we do want to provide answers. Um, you, you know, in, in my book, I point out that more than half the time when people ask people ask Jesus a question, he did not answer them right away. Yes. He answered a question with a question. But there are plenty of times that he did give an answer. Mm-hmm. And we don't want to just keep asking questions, because after a while that's just kind of annoying and, uh, you know, I mean, it's not very helpful. <laughs> so I do think we want to be able to offer uh, answers. But I think, it's, I think we need to have a picture in our mind of much more of a two-way dialogue that goes back and forth a lot, rather than, I think what a lot of people have in their mind is, person asks a question, we deliver a very long, elaborate, watertight, theologically rich answer, and then that's the end of the discussion. Yes. Well, I don't, I don't think that's really the best way to do things, and I, I think it's far more productive and helpful to people if we kind of move along gradually. So they say something, we say something, we they back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, almost like a dance, if I can call it that, being willing to help people move gradually along the path from unbelief to belief. Yes. Now, one of the principles, you talk about five principles and five operative questions. One of the things you talk about is questions as a form of reveille. Which I think is really good. I think that's interesting, the principle of kind of getting people to wake up a little bit. How do you think questions are able to do that in a way that maybe a statement does not? Um, well, sometimes people say things or they ask questions that um, indicates that they're not really thinking all that well or they're not really awake um, <laughs> when it comes to thought. We. Uh, we live in a very non-thinking culture, a very entertainment-oriented culture, very passive. Um, people sit and watch videos or watch TV, which is a very passive thing. They're not really engaged. And so sometimes people say some things that are just just nonsense. You know, they'll right. say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as it works for you. Right. That's a really foolish statement, but it's amazing how many times people say that or some version of that. And so at that point, we have a choice. We can attack it and go, that's ridiculous, that's stupid, that's nonsense, don't believe that. Or if we ask a question, I think what it does is it gently wakes the person up to the fact that they're not thinking very well. And so I I propose a number of questions, but one of my favorites is just a very, very simple of, really? (laughs) Do you really think so? Do you really believe that? And for a lot of people, it's the first time anybody's challenged them. They have hidden behind a cliche like, well, you can believe anything you want as long as you're sincere, for so long that they don't even think about what they're saying. Yes. And so when we say, well, 
wait a minute, do you, do you really believe that? Um, is that really possible to do? Um, you're gently waking people up. And I, I think there needs to be a lot of that in our day and age when there, there's, there's just a whole lot of um, non-thinking going on. Very, very true. Yes. So, for example, you use this example in the book when you hear someone say, I think people are basically good. All people are basically good. Then you can employ the word, the question, really, and maybe list some people who most of us would agree are not good. Now, have you had this experience walking somebody through their faulty thinking like this? And, and how does it go, generally, if you try to employ this? Well, I have... Um a, a, a number of experiences with this because for over 30 years I was in campus ministry and probably for the first, I don't know, maybe 10 years, I just, I, I just did a kind of an old-fashioned style of evangelism where I did all the talking and I just sort of made a presentation. And I found that that didn't really work all that well. At least it didn't work on the campuses where I was uh, serving. Right. So that's when I, it was almost out of desperation that I started trying this idea of asking questions, and that went a lot better. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that all of a sudden, the, you know, revival broke out and everybody I talked to became a Christian, no, but I, I do think that it was more helpful in helping people consider something that beforehand they, they, they didn't even consider it. They didn't even give it a second, uh, a second thought. So I, I do think it's a good approach. It takes a lot more patience. It takes a lot more reliance and dependence upon God to be working because we may only be involved for part of the process, and then we pray that God brings other people into their lives who will continue the process. Exactly. So I, I just think it's more realistic, given how skeptical and antagonistic our current world is to the gospel. Very well said. Well, we're going to come back after this break. Randy Newman with us, questioning evangelism, engaging people's hearts the way Jesus did is his book. And we'll come back on Janet Meffer today after this. Did you know that over 18 million babies have been aborted worldwide since January 1st? Every single one of these babies died during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why isn't the world declaring these babies as lost? Here's Dan Steiner, the president of Preborn, a ministry dedicated to saving babies' lives from abortion through ultrasound. I sense God's broken heart over the issue of abortion. You see, he sees every little baby that's being formed in the mother's womb, and it breaks his heart to see when the lifetime that he has planned for them is taken from them violently so often. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the United States and the direct competition to Planned Parenthood. Would you help show that these babies' lives are not forgotten? Preborn is there for women in crisis who want to make the right choice, but society tells them that a preborn baby is not a human life. I was afraid. I was scared. I didn't know what to do. Everybody wanted me to have an abortion. Preborn shines light into a mother's womb, introducing her to the beautiful life growing inside of her. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. 
the cost of one ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds cost $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I'm going to keep my baby, and I'm going to be a great mom. Every baby's life is important. Would you please join with Janet Meffer today and Preborn in the Cause for Life? All gifts are tax deductible. And when you donate, you'll receive an ultrasound picture along with stories of other babies' lives that were spared. Call now, 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Great to have you along and great to have with us Randy Newman, Senior Fellow for Evangelism and Apologetics at the C.S. Lewis Institute and author of the book Questioning Evangelism, now out in its second edition. And we've been talking about the role of questions in sharing the gospel with people. Now, this is interesting, Randy, because when... I often talk to other Christians about being able to share your faith with an unbeliever. Many times what people will say is, I don't even know how to start. I don't even know what to say to people. You can either hand them a tract and you can talk that way, or you can start talking about a world event or something like that. What has worked for you to get the questioning going? In other words, how do you begin? Yeah, and uh, and beginning is, I think, for many, many people, the toughest part. Well, well, let me first say that um, I think part of the difficulty comes when we want to have planned out in our mind how it's going to go, no matter how they respond. Mm-hmm. So we, we have in our mind kind of a flow chart. Okay, I'm going to ask this question, and then they could respond in this way, this way, this way. And if they say this, then I'll go here. Mm-hmm. If they say this, I'll go here. We want to map it all out. And that is paralyzing. Because (laughs) you can never anticipate enough scenarios, and so sooner or later you just go, "Oh, I just, I, 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 I'm I'm too scared. I'm I'm afraid I'm going to get stumped." Yes. So what I want to say to people is, "Yeah, you probably will get stumped. That's okay. Uh, I mean, you probably will come to places where you go, "Yeah, I don't know. That's really okay, because the process is in God's hands, not in ours." Now, he uses us in the process, but we're not the ones, you know, uh, causing the growth. Yes, yes. So so how to start, I think I want to try to have a number of questions that I feel comfortable asking. Well, comfortable is probably not a good goal, Um, (laughs) but (laughs) that I'm prepared to ask. And I think the less threatening, the better. So I, I think it's okay to ask something like, well, I mean, as you're getting to know someone, you find out what their interests are, what do they like to do with their free time, what are their favorite movies, favorite TV shows, and then you weave in, well, how about, how about spiritual stuff? Do you ever think much about spiritual stuff? Hmm. Or um, has, has religion ever played any kind of part in your life? And, and if so, how, how does it make a difference now in your life? And it really is... Um, an opportunity to get to know someone better. And so you really have to be a very good listener and be willing to listen. And go, huh, that's interesting. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it fits under the category of getting to know the person much more than I have this agenda that I have to accomplish or I have this message that I have to get across. We do have a message to get across, but um, sometimes we can we can um, allow that to dominate so much that we're we're not really being 
a conversation partner. Exactly, um, right. The person as project rather as person, rather than, per, you know, when we, we yeah. when I have to accomplish this, I have 10 questions and you're supposed to answer this way and you went off script, sir. I don't know if I can keep talking to you. Yeah, that's not going to work. So what would be some of the questions? You've mentioned asking the question, really, a very simple question that you can play off people's statements and get them to continue to talk. But what would be some of the other questions that you found to be useful in the process of evangelism? Um, well, uh, like I said, there, there are some starter questions that either start a conversation or transition a conversation from whatever to spiritual things, like, do you ever think much about spiritual stuff or religion and faith? Has that ever been a part of your life? Then there's another whole set of questions that um, uh, sort of continue the conversation. And so when I said the question earlier, really, do you really think so? A couple of others would be... Um, um, can you explain that to me? Sometimes people say some things that you that really don't make any sense, and uh, so you ask them. Well, now, I don't I don't understand. When when you say, for example, all religions are the same, hmm, can you can you explain that to me? Because I, I don't I don't see how Buddhism and Judaism are the same. Yes. And then people might say things like, well, you know, they're they're they just differ in minor things. Well, I I don't I don't understand that. Could you explain that to me? So that's one question. Another one is, um, uh, well, um, isn't it possible? There's another whole series of questions. Well, isn't it, isn't it possible that some of this stuff that you've been rejecting might be worth reconsidering? Hmm. Uh, isn't it possible? Um, and there's another set of questions that all fit under the category of, um, how do you know that? I wonder how you've come to that conclusion. You know, sometimes people have these really strong statements of, well, you know, I don't think we should ever... You know, we should never condemn anybody for their religious beliefs. Huh, okay, well, now, how did, how did you come to that? How did, how did you formulate that? Or who has influenced you in your thinking? Um, so it's those kinds of questions that get people talking so that you learn a whole lot more about what they believe. But it also, sometimes they start seeing the emptiness of their beliefs. Right. You know, there are a lot of times people will say things, and we say, well, now, how did, how did you come to that conclusion? Oh, I don't know. I just, I just always thought that. <laughs> Well, now, um, uh, are, aren't there some problems with that, or how, how has that worked out for you? Now, the, the challenge is to be able to ask those questions without sounding like you're trying to trick somebody or trap them or to be insulting. And that's, that's very difficult in our day and age for a couple of reasons. One is because that's just our whole culture right now, where... Yes. I mean, you watch any of the news programs or talk shows on radio, and it's just they're trying to play gotcha. See how stupid you are? Yep. Look at that. Yep. But the other is we really do believe, and we're right, I believe, in believing that we have the truth. The gospel is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So, so it's hard for us to be gentle um, when we think we know the answer before people say anything. Um, that what, what, what's very helpful, though, is if, if we try to really preach the gospel to ourselves and realize we, we came to this not because we're so smart or we're so brilliant, but because God chose to open up our eyes. Right, right. And uh, the very essence of our message is God is gracious and forgiving to people who don't deserve it. That's right. And I think the more we can remember that, the less 
obnoxious or arrogant will be. Perfect. I hope so, at least. Yeah, you hope so. Yeah, absolutely. You have to remember that, that you were once an unbeliever as well, and Christ was gracious to you, and, and you need to be gracious to other people. So what about their questions? You have a section in the book on these questions that unbelievers are asking. What sorts of questions do you often hear that really, you know, matter in these conversations where you may be asking some questions, but then you may get some questions back at you and you need to be able to handle that as well? Well, sure. Yeah. The middle part of the book, I, I tried to look at the com- the most common questions that I think people are going to ask today and and then how to deliver our answer, not Again, not as just a straightforward presentation, but as a conversation, a back-and-forth dialogue. So I, th- I think the three biggest questions of our day and age are questions about suffering, questions about the exclusivity of the gospel, is Jesus really the only way, and then questions related to sexuality, especially homosexuality, transgender issues. Right, right. So for the the question about problem of evil and suffering, I I mean, again, I can't go into all of this, but we want to be very sympathetic for people. We don't want to sound like, oh, that's not a problem for me. It is a problem for Christians. It It is. is. It is. And so, uh, I mean, I think we have the best answer, but it still is an incomplete answer, and it still is a very painful question. On the question of exclusivity... Um, what we want to try to do is to help people see that everybody is exclusive. It's just that they draw their lines in different places. So Christians claim to be the only way to God, but people who say, well, that's wrong, well, they're also being exclusive. They're excluding Christians. I mean, so, so everybody, we have to try to level the playing field and show we're all intolerant of some things. We're all exclusive in our own ways. That takes a lot of work and a lot of dialogue, but that's very, very important. It does. Um, The question is about sexuality. We just need to be very compassionate, but very biblical, and, and to really do our homework and prepare to be able to articulate that God's design for sex is the best. And whenever people deviate from that, and there's quite a wide variety of deviations, <laughs> um, it doesn't go well in the long run. It might, it might go well in the short run, probably feels good in the short run, but what we want to try to show is that God is the one who designed us as sexual beings, and he has in mind of how this works best. Um, so we need to get comfortable talking about topics that perhaps we've thought are uncomfortable. Well, we, we need to get comfortable with them. And the best model by far, by far, is the Bible. The Bible doesn't seem to be uncomfortable talking about sexuality in so many places. Right. We even have a whole entire book dedicated to the topic in the Song of Songs. We do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I think that that's such good advice because you are going to face these questions from Christians, now, non-Christians. But what about when it gets personal? What You know, the, the issue of Christians being jerks or Christians being hypocrites. Sometimes it will descend to that level. I've had that happen to me a number of times. Christians are hypocrites. If they're so godly, why do they act like this? What about those sorts of questions? What do you do in that instance when you get that? Well, that was the toughest chapter for me to write in the book. Um, if Jesus is so great, why are some of his followers such jerks? And, and in fact, I think, I think the publisher originally said to me, are you sure you want to title it that strongly? And I said, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> so they left it, which I'm very grateful. Yep. Um, oh, I, you know, we need to have in mind a number of different ways to approach that question, depending on where people are coming from. Sometimes people ask that question, and they're really angry. 
And sometimes they're really angry because something really terrible has happened to them by the hands of Christians, and so we need to be willing to listen. On the other hand, sometimes people are just using it, and they're being far more hypocritical than any hypocritical Christian they've ever met. So we need to gently point that out to them. And uh, somewhere along the lines, uh, I want to be able to say, yeah, you're right, Christians are hypocrites. And, in fact, I'm one of the biggest ones. And um, I think that that's the, the common universal human problem, in that we all fail to live up to the things we say we should. Very good, very and good. I want to use that to point it to the gospel. The wonderful thing about the gospel is it... It can forgive us of our worst hypocrisy and, and things that are far worse than it. I love it. Randy Newman, his book is Questioning Evangelism. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today, and now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford Today. Back in 2009, pro-life activist and ordained Baptist minister Walter Hoy went to jail. Why? Because he stood outside an abortion clinic on a public sidewalk in Oakland, California, holding a sign that read, God loves you and your baby, let us help you. He ended up spending time in jail when he could have accepted a lesser penalty of community service. He was eventually exonerated, and he tells his incredible story in a new book, which is called Black and Pro-Life in America. Walter, it's just great to have you with us. How are you? Janet, I'm fine. Good to hear from you. Well, good to have you here. I am very interested in your story. It's a fascinating story, just what happened to you, uh, starting with your arrest and even before. But tell us a little bit, if you would, about your background and how you really got involved in pro-life activism and, and why that's so important for you as a Christian. Well, what happened really started, my pro-life uh, started, with the birth of my son. My son was born a little less than six months. Uh, he was born at two point pounds, one ounce. Mm. And he went ultimately down to 1.6. But at 1.9, Janet, I was holding him in the palm of my hand. And oh my goodness, um, I was thinking that I wouldn't see him anymore. Yeah. But that's when God spoke to me and let me know that what I'm holding in the palm of my hand is literally alive, living, breathing, human being. And at that point, I knew what abortion was, and I knew what abortion does. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, 1.9 pounds, that's just teeny tiny. And yet, you know, throughout this country, we have much bigger babies who lose their lives to abortion. So that really propelled you then to, to get involved in pro-life activism. It did. I, I was never the same since, and, you know, just year after year, step by step, it, we got more and more and more involved in the pro-life movement. Yeah. Now, you started, didn't you, in sidewalk counseling? Yeah, yeah. Literally, I was in my office. I got a phone call. There were some sidewalk counselors that were struggling trying to, you know, get the pro-life message across at an abortion clinic in Oakland. 
the, the women just weren't stopping and talking with them. And so they had this idea, this, this plan, that if a minister, a pastor, a preacher, a deacon, you know, someone the women would recognize in the pulpit were standing outside of the abortion clinic, the women would have a hard time walking by their pastor, priest, deacon, et cetera, going in, and they would stop and talk. Yeah. Well, I said, sure, I'll join you. And sure enough, they were absolutely right. Yeah. What What sorts of experiences did you have early on with women wanting to talk and wanting to engage a little bit on, on the issue as they're heading into the clinic? Well, I, I, I'm on a public sidewalk. I'm holding a sign that says, God loves you and your baby. Let us help you. And oh my goodness, uh, that sign literally uh, was the the questions, the three most asked questions that I would I would get. Uh-huh. And so the late ladies would literally say, "Is it true that God loves me?" And they they say, "Preacher, is it true that God loves me?" They'd recognize me from being in the pulpit. And then they'd say, "Well, if it's true that God loves me, does He love me and my baby?" And I say, "Yes, both times." And then they would look at me and say, well, if it's true that God loves me and my baby, will you help me? Hmm. And we did. And things just took off from there. Yeah, now tell us a little bit, because people might remember this story, but for those who aren't familiar with it, what happened in Oakland? Because they passed this law making it illegal to approach a woman who was entering an abortion clinic without her consent. What led up to that law, and how was it that you decided, I'm going to do it anyway? Well, uh, what, what, what led up to it was that the clinic was losing money. They were losing, the women were literally turning around. They were getting the help they needed, the information they needed. Uh, they had a choice and they were opting to use it and they decided they didn't want to get an abortion. Let me give you an example. One day I was out there and I'm only out there one day a week for two hours. And this one day there were 27 appointments for the abortion clinic. There's no way the abortion clinic can do 27 abortions in two hours, but they weren't coming to get an abortion. They knew, they had heard there was a preacher out there on the sidewalk that was helping the women. Hmm. Well, that was just over the top. And so eventually there was a meeting with the city council members, the the chief of police, the executive director of the abortion clinic, uh, the escorts leader, I, I forget her name. And they crafted the law. Essentially, they took a page from Daniel. Daniel was only guilty of praying three times a day. Well, I was just guilty of standing on a public sidewalk, holding a sign, passing out literature, pregnancy care center literature, and having a conversation. And the city council of Oakland literally made that illegal in Oakland. Wow. Well, now, how did the final conflict come about the day that you were arrested? I mean, you went out anyway. You were determined to try to save lives like you always had been trying to do. What, how did the confrontation take place? What do you remember about that that day that you got in big trouble for doing that because you ran afoul of that law? <laughs> I remember we had uh, fought for so long for months with the city council uh, you know, debating and talking about the law at the city hall. But they were determined to pass it anyway, and they did. So the very next um, week, I went out there, as I normally did, and there were three or four police cars waiting for me. I walked up to the police officer. I said, my name's Walter Hoy. He said, I, I know who you are. I said, well, I'm going to go across the street. He said, were well, you aware of the, the new order? I said, I, I am. 
um, but I'm determined to try to help the women. He said, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll sit here in our car, here's three or four police cars, and we'll just sit and watch. Well, they did. They did the whole time I was out there, didn't arrest me at all. Well, this went on for about two or three months, and eventually uh, the clinic just got tired of it and demanded I be arrested. Well, this is what happened on the day I was arrested. I was in my usual spot on the sidewalk, and I noticed that this particular day, all the abortion clinic escorts in their orange vests were all crowded by the door, all crowded by the entrance to the abortion clinic. And when the police drove up, I didn't think anything of it. They had been there several times before. And the police went and actually tried to arrest the abortion clinic escorts for blocking the entrance <laughs> to the clinic. They said, oh, no, 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 not us, not us. <laughs> Go get him. Oh. And they were all pointing at me, and the police just put their head down. They saw me standing on a public sidewalk holding the sign that says, God loves you and your baby, let us help you. <laughs> and they oh, slowly walked over and arrested me. Reluctantly, it sounds like. The police don't sound like they wanted to arrest you at all. No, they didn't. They had come several times before, and they didn't like to come. There were much more serious problems in the city of Oakland than a preacher on the sidewalk helping women. I mean, it didn't matter what they needed. Sometimes it was just groceries. Sometimes they just needed lunch or someone to talk to. Sometimes it was a doctor or nurse. They wanted prenatal care. It didn't matter what they needed. We were helping them. And so the police really didn't see any reason to stop what they were doing in the city of Oakland to come get me. So, but when they all pointed at him over there, they just said, oh, and they reluctantly went over. And they, they talked to me after about the, the law. I, I said, I understood it. They said, you know, we got to take you in. And they turned me around. They, they handcuffed my hands behind my back. And then they walked me to the car. And you know, Janet, when they put their hand on top of your head and then they sort of stuff you in the back seat of the police car, one of the officers noticed my hat. My hat says, God, Jesus. Hmm. And he said, preacher, you know that even your hat violates the law. Oh, I what? Said, what? <laughs> he said, well, Jesus has a tendency to discourage women from getting abortions. I said, that's right. And then he said, stuff oh. me in the back in the back of the car. So I wear the hat and glasses religiously, and I wear it all the time now. Yeah, I was going to say. That's what happened that day. Unbelievable. Why, the, the, I don't even have any words for that. That's so outrageous. But it kind of gets to the spirit uh, that is behind the whole abortion movement, which is God is a problem and God's love for his creation and for the most weak and vulnerable humans among us is a problem if you want to make money off abortions. We're going to take a short break. We'll come back with Walter Hoy. Black and Pro-Life in America is his book, and we'll be back right after this. Many people in developing nations have no access to desperately needed medical care. 
That's why Mercy Ships brings volunteers aboard our hospital ship, the Africa Mercy, to give the world's forgotten poor the free medical care they need. We have an immediate need for registered nurses, especially with a pediatric specialty. As a volunteer nurse, you won't just give life-altering health care, you'll receive so much in return. It's an amazingly rewarding experience. You'll give hope and make a difference in the lives of those who have virtually no access to medical aid. It's such a fantastic thing to do. Everybody who I've met on this ship either wants to come back and do it again or they're already here for the second, third, or tenth time. So what are you waiting for? Show mercy to someone today. I would say go for it. Get more information and learn how to apply by visiting mercyships.org forward slash nurses. That's mercyships.org forward slash nurses. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for joining us. And I think some of the most fascinating stories of courage and Christian boldness take place within the pro-life community. I've always thought so. And we are talking with Walter Hoy. He is the pro-life activist who was arrested back in 2009 for standing outside an abortion clinic on a public sidewalk in Oakland, California, with a sign, horrible sign, right, that says, God loves you and your baby, let us help you. And Walter, you were up to the point in the story where you were pushed into the police car. You were arrested uh, under this bubble ordinance, and they didn't even like your hat that said, got Jesus. Now, from there, one once they arrested you, uh, a whole nother story takes place. But what do you remember about what happened? Because clearly you could have gotten community service. You opted to go to jail. How did that all kind of unfold? Well, Janet, I was facing four years in jail. There were, there were two counts from two abortion clinic escorts that said they were very afraid, afraid for their lives to even be near me. And I didn't find this out until I was being arraigned. You know, I, I didn't even want to go to the arraignment. I wasn't even bothered. I didn't have to go. We were going to plead not guilty. But I had never been arraigned before. So mm-hmm. I decided to go. I was late. But as soon as I got there, I was right on time. <laughs> and as I walked up, the, uh, the attorney from Oakland was making it clear that there were two uh, restraining orders they wanted to get. And they were, each had a year in jail. And so it took us three pretrial hearings only to find out that the abortion escorts didn't sign the restraining order, didn't ask for the restraining order. <laughs> the a city attorney had already signed that and worked that all out. Hmm. And even though they admitted that my voice was as soft as their, as 
their husband. They the judge the judge said it's going to stand anyway <sighs> because the attorney asked one of the abortion clinic escorts on the stand. He said, if you were shopping and you saw this man in a grocery store, this black man in a grocery store, would you still be afraid for your life? And she said yes. Oh. And it just said that's all they needed. Now we're we're in court. Oh, goodness. We're facing the four years in court. And oh my goodness, the deal was pay the fine, accept, accept uh, probation, and plead guilty. They want me to plead guilty. I refused to plead guilty. I refused to pay the fine. I, I was not going to accept probation. Uh, we have videotaped evidence of what happened that those two days are being called in question. And I didn't even think I'd need it. But sure enough, I did. I wouldn't need the videotape. Goodness. That's crazy. So you ended up taking the jail time. What was it, 30 days you spent in jail? Yeah, well, again, it it was four years. It only got reduced because of the videotape. You see, in court, there were no women complaining. (laughs) They were all getting help. The only complaint in court was the executive director of the abortion clinic. (laughs) And it just so happens that we have videotape evidence of the two days we had in question. The only reason I have videotape was I was taping what was happening to me so I could go back to my church and I was going to train others to come with me in this sidewalk counseling ministry. This was a miracle. Well, she got up, the abortion clinic escort, um, the abortion clinic executive director got up and lied in court, and I was through. I said, let's introduce the videotape. They argued for almost a half hour, and they only agreed to let us share the evidence because they were afraid of losing the jury. The jury was looking like, well, my goodness, you said he was a monster. Why can't we see it? Yeah. And so they agreed to see the videotape. The videotape impeached the entire testimony of the executive director. And <laughs> do you know, they still allowed her testimony to stand. And the, the Oakland City Attorney even used her testimony in his closing argument. Good grief. And, Oh, my goodness. So it was clear that even with videotape evidence that my rights were being violated, I was going to go to jail. That, that's crazy, because if she was proven to be a liar, it should be a done deal right there. Is it, I mean, wouldn't that be the case? It would be. I thought that would be the case. Matter of fact, we, were, we didn't even bother uh, with the videotape, because we know that the abortion clinics have videotape, and they're already listening to the audio. But for some reason... Their videotape got destroyed or their videotape company just couldn't, you know, get it for some reason. They didn't have it. They didn't know that we had it. We just happened to have it. And I was waiting for them to play their videotape so they can, everyone can see exactly what happened. They lost it. They never had it. We said, fine, we'll play ours. And it didn't matter. But what happened was the courtroom was packed. The media was everywhere. And they all saw the videotape. They all saw that she lied. They all saw that my rights were being violated. And they saw I was just being railroaded in the jail no matter what. And with that, all of a sudden, when it got to the end, they had reduced my sentence from four years to two years. And finally, they got down to 30 days. Goodness. And then when you actually went to jail, what was that experience like being in jail for such a ridiculous charge? Well, 
You know, Janet, the, the first question they asked me in jail was, did I bring any drugs with me? Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> man. very first question. But when I said no, they were all disappointed. And I went over to, to my bunk, and I was in the top bunk. <clears throat> and as I was getting situated, one of the brothers had a, a, a paper, a newspaper. He was reading the newspaper, and the newspaper had an article about me. And the newspaper, he said, hey, man, is this you? <laughs> I said, yeah. And from that moment on, my relationship with the fellas in jail just changed dramatically. Oh, wow. I mean, we had three miracles in jail. Uh, we were leading a prayer meeting at, at, at midnight like Paul and Silas. Mm. We had men come to Christ. Um, it was just an amazing time in jail. That's incredible. So after you got out of jail and after everything went down, what has life been like for you since then? I mean, you talk, for example, what you learned about some of the lingering distrust between blacks and whites. How did that come into play during this experience? Well, that was, unfortunately, that is still a reality today. There's a lot of mistrust. And so what the Issues for Life Foundation does is that we work with black leadership and we help them get the pro-life message. And to be quite honest with you, Jan, we're really good at it. <laughs> good. So uh, I've been speaking all over the country. I've, I've been from one coast to the next, and we've been uh, you know, speaking exclusively on this issue and helping the, the larger pro-life movement understand how to better reach uh, black leadership on this issue. Good. Well, you look at the numbers of black children who are killed in abortion. It is an absolute holocaust. It's horrible. And yet there seems to be a little disconnect. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why there doesn't seem to be more of a pro-life groundswell within the black community, uh, given the numbers of children who are aborted. Well, Janet, uh, there are literally four specific reasons why black leadership rejects the pro-life movement. I'll just talk about one, and it's the number one issue. It's the number one reason black leadership says no, and that is black leadership is post-abortive. There's an abortion in his or her life somewhere. Mm. And when you understand that, then you can begin to shape the best strategy, the best argument. You can get the best conversation at that point to get the message across. But if you don't understand that, you can do whatever you like. You can be wonderful but they're post-abortive. They need help. And you don't get that. You're not going to be able to reach them. Well, that's true. And then that's true across the board as well. That That's more and more the case, given the numbers of abortions across America. There are a lot of people who have been touched by abortion, and you do have to deal with that. But ultimately, that's really um, uh, the importance of the gospel, isn't it? When you talk about leading men to Christ in jail, people need Jesus Christ. This is what brings us life and hope, and this is what brings forgiveness as well. Absolutely. Jesus is the answer. I don't believe there's a political solution to ending abortion. I do believe that it plays a role. It needs to be on the table. But ultimately, it's not going to be a political solution. Let's let's be honest. Jesus didn't have to deal with Herod or or Caesar or any of the Pharisees or Sadducees. He didn't deal with that to solve our, our sin problem. He had to make his way to the cross. So ultimately, I agree with you, Janet. It's going to be uh, Christ uh, as the answer. And the more we share Christ and the more we relate 
uh, Christ to others, the better it will be. Oh, man. Well, people have got to read this book. It's all about Walter Hoy's story, his incarceration, his exoneration. It's called Black and Pro-Life in America. Walter, it went too fast, but it was so good to have you here. I really appreciate your being with us. Just a delight to have you. Thank you so much, Janet. God bless you. God bless you, too. Thanks again for joining us. And thank you for listening to Janet Mefford today. Always great to have you here. God bless you. We'll see you next time.